The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Have you ever been in a situation where suddenly time slows down and you watch a car crash in slow motion. You can see the car skidding towards the barrier or the ditch and you know in your bones it's going to be awful. The car's going to flip. The people in the car who maybe not have been strapped in are going to be in an awful situation. The car's going to get wrecked. And if we're lucky, it doesn't take out another car. And it's horrible to watch a situation like that over 20 years. I've been trying to cover the housing market for about 20 years since I arrived back in New Zealand in 2003, and another person has been in a similar situation. An economist called Dominic Stevens, who you may know of as the former chief economist for Westpac, he's now the chief economist at the Treasury. And he and I have been watching this slow-motion car crash with growing alarm for 20 years. He's a really good economist, and he really cares. And he's now in a position as the chief economist at the Treasury to use the various resources of government to try to understand how this slow motion car crash got started, why it's still going and how bad it is. He's doing a series of studies at Treasury to find out what it is that's caused our house prices to be the most expensive in the world, what it is that makes our rents the least affordable in the world, the thing that drives not only our economy and our society and our politics, but day in, day out creates utter misery and so much pain and costs throughout our society. I was thinking about this again this week while watching Question Time in Parliament and the opposition's housing spokesman, Chris Bishop, who understands many of these problems and also cares a lot, was challenging, rightly, the Social Development Minister, Carmel Cipollone, about the awful situation in Rotorua. That strip of motels where a thousand people for years have been stuck in awful conditions to the point where TVNZ Sunday program has reported about how a young woman was in labour and dragged out of a motel room by a security guard. And the awful situation where the government seems to think that there was nothing wrong. How did we get here? Well, luckily for us, Dominic Stevens has done some of the work. And what he's found is that there are three core drivers for our housing market. He's really done the work to narrow down the three causes. And what he's found are startling in many ways. The huge value that is now in New Zealand's housing market was created by a couple of accidents, but also from some choices Choices that we are making as a society, as voters, as a government. Choices to make some people incredibly wealthy, 
for no particular work. They just happened to own land when interest rates fell and at a time when the land was not easily able to be opened up by councils. Choices that mean we now have a couple of hundred thousand kids living in poverty, turning up at A&E a couple of times a year, generating enormous costs and pain for the future. This week on When the Facts Change, I talked with Dominic Stevens about those three factors that are driving our house prices so high and what it is we could do about it. And also, with him now as a public servant, keen not to be quite so politically opinionated, understand the choices that we're making. Choices to make some people rich and ever richer off the rise of land prices, in part because of some tax advantages that are still there, at the expense of people having affordable, warm, dry housing that means they can have a secure, healthy future. This is a story about the biggest, most horrible, 20-year-long car smash that is our housing market. This week on When the Facts Change. Well, kia ora to Dominic Stevens. Welcome to When the Facts Change. Kia ora, Baron. So as the Chief Economist of the Treasury, can you tell us why our house prices are so high and why they rose so much in 2020 and 2021? Well, um, as part of the work on this, um, Treasury has formed the Housing Technical Working Group alongside the Reserve Bank and the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development. Did a deep dive into the drivers of um, housing affordability in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with a focus on, on Hamilton Waikato. The conclusion we drew was that the main reason house prices have risen over 20 years in New Zealand is a combination of a large global decline in interest rates combined with restricted urban land supply in New Zealand and the features of the New Zealand tax system. So let's unpack that a bit. That interest rate thing is maybe a surprise for people. Uh, could you tell us why is it global interest rates would have an effect on house prices in Hamilton? Well, first of all, global interest rates affect New Zealand interest rates. So as they fall, New Zealand really has to go with the flow or experience runaway inflation or deflation. So as global interest rates fell, New Zealand interest rates fell. That makes it more affordable for investors and the like to, um, to purchase houses uh, and initially drives house prices up. But the way it plays out in the long run is a little more subtle and really comes down to the functioning of land markets. So let me just back up a little bit on this. We know that if interest rates fall permanently, that um, rental yields, the house price to rent ratio ought to change. After all, if you could still get a 10% yield on um, a rental property investment uh, and 2% in the bank, people would pile into housing, that would drive prices up and it would force that price to rent ratio apart. But really, um, we really have to unpack why prices moved in New Zealand more than rents. So the fact is that rents in New Zealand have evolved broadly in line with incomes, while prices have risen many multiples more, and the price-to-rent ratio is now very different. And actually, in traditional urban economics theories, we think of um, house prices as being tied to what it costs to build a new house, 
and therefore they would expect um, you know, interest rates rise, increases demand to own properties, uh, initial increase in prices stimulates a supply response, brings on new supply, drives prices back to where they were before, in line with the cost to build, and drives rents down. So those traditional theories would actually suggest that a big drop in interest rates should lead to, ultimately, lower rents, which did not happen in New Zealand. That's not our reality. It's palpably not our reality. Instead, actually, prices rose. Now, the reason for that is uh, that we don't live in this world where there's abundant land available upon which to plonk a house uh, and undertake this supply response. In fact, land in New Zealand is very restricted in supply. When that happens, really, rents start to anchor the system. Changes in interest rates um, get capitalised into the value of scarce urban land, driving land prices up. Now, if you think about the incentive to build, land prices rise. The price of a, a house upon land rises alongside, but the margin, the developer's margin, doesn't particularly change. So there's no actual incentive to undertake a supply response, no big change in price. The initial lift in prices due to that drop in interest rates persists, and the um, purported eventual decline in, in, in rents just does not occur. So that means there must be an incentive just to buy the land, almost not to bother to put a house on it, because the real free kick, if you like, is as interest rates fall, the value of the land goes up automatically. You know, you don't even have to do anything. You don't even have to mow the lawn. That's right. That's right. If land becomes very scarce and limited in supply, then it tends to changes in any financial factor, actually tax, interest rates, um, all sorts of things, get capitalised into the value of scarce urban land. And there's no real change. And, yeah, you don't have to do anything to, to profit from that. And importantly, um, I mean, we're not just making this up. We've got great evidence um, uh, supporting supporting this. And one of the most obvious facts is that most of the vast majority of the increase in, in house prices in New Zealand has actually been an increase in the value of urban land. The price of dwellings upon land hasn't changed much. And I think people can see that when they get their rates assessments and they see the land value has gone up, not the capital value. So that's um, fascinating. Tell me about what you found, particularly in Hamilton with section prices. Yeah, Hamilton section prices up over 600%. Now, we didn't actually have a breakdown of um, dwelling costs for, for Hamilton, but we do have nationwide. Statistics New Zealand um, captures the entire cost of putting a dwelling on a section, and it's, it's up a little over 100%. So it's, you know, there's a really big difference um, between the cost of putting dwellings on, on land and the increase in the cost of land. And so what we've done here is we've gone through a couple of the potential reasons for house prices and ones you hear, you know, in the pub or occasionally on the front page, which is, oh, well, it's, um, it's construction costs. Well, as we've seen here, it's, it's more actual land prices. Uh, and then there's the argument, oh, well, you know, incomes have risen a lot. Well, actually, uh, house prices have risen significantly faster than incomes. Or you could argue, oh, it's the rents. They keep going up. That's why house prices are so high. Well, if that was the case, uh, rents would have risen as fast as uh, house prices, which they haven't. And so we're really starting to zero in here on the interest rates, the land availability, and the tax advantages. Could you talk us through those tax advantages and how they combine with that, you know, those expectations of uh, juicy rises in land, land values? Well, there are all sorts of ways in which the tax system affects housing 
in New Zealand or house house prices. Probably the main way, though, is that we don't we lack a comprehensive capital gains tax. So in most cases, New Zealanders can purchase a property. You know, they, they sink their capital into an investment. Often, actually, any any money they borrow for that investment is tax deductible. Um, or certainly any capital that they sink into it, what they're doing is moving out of investments that are taxable, such as term deposits in the bank. Instead, they're purchasing um, land, really, um, or, or property. Um, much of the return from that investment is capital gain, and it's tax-free. And therefore, it, it directs us or, or um, directs us towards investments that tend to yield tax-free capital gain. Now, again, if land was very abundant, well, um, that would tend to sort of subsidise rents, if you like, but that's not the case in New Zealand. Land is very scarce. So what we're doing is um, that tax advantage, the lack of a comprehensive capital gains tax, has been capitalised into the value of land. Now, a key point that we made in this, um, in this study, we didn't really... Didn't really go into the specifics of the of the tax advantages, other than to to demonstrate that they have really played a big role in the lift in prices over over twenty years. Um, but the key point we're making is that in this world, the, the real world of limits on the availability of land, tax advantages for housing are capitalised into land prices, and therefore changes in in the tax situation will subsequently affect land prices. And that's really important because I think various tax working groups or you know, whenever we start talking about tax and housing, people are often, and fair enough too, concerned that change in the tax advantages that housing enjoys might um, ultimately just be borne by renters. You know, landlords might just put up their rent and, and renters would bear the cost of any change in the tax arrangements. And what we're saying here is, no, that's, that's probably not quite right. Um, if land is more restricted in supply, then what you're actually going to see is tax change would result in more change in land value rather than change in rents. And we've seen a sneak preview because of the changes to interest deductibility for landlords. Uh, your uh, report suggests that it actually has already had some little bit of an impact on land values. Yeah, just to be clear, we don't know exactly what, what impact there's been, but um, we do certainly know that house prices are falling right now, mostly due to the lift in, in interest rates, and we suspect that the, the tax changes could also be, be playing a role. They were certainly um, in the right direction. They, um, um, if, 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 if what you're seeking is more affordable housing, um, they've certainly had an effect. We don't know quite how large it is, and because those tax changes weren't comprehensive, that that does limit the, the impact that they've had. So um, it applied to, to some housing investors and, and not others. So we've unpacked the um, interest rates and we've unpacked the tax. Now let's look at the land availability. Uh, you know, when I f- fly into Auckland or around the country, I see lots of green space and a lot of it's flat. And New Zealand's, you know, relatively underpopulated compared to some other land masses. Why is it we have a shortage of land availability for housing? It's a big and complex question. And I mean, at the very superficial level, you could say, well, people have got to work somewhere. They need to be close to a central city to, um, or, or, or to another major work centre to, to, to bring that into effect. And there's only limited land close enough for them to, to work. Well, that's a sort of simplistic explanation. But um, when you get deeper into it and you think more long term, well, the effective availability of land that allows people to effectively live where they want comes down to 
transport networks. We had better transport networks. We could get people to uh, to move. Zoning. So um, zoning of either new spaces to work or zoning for, to allow for intensification to allow more people to live near the places where they want to work, uh, work live or play. Um, the infrastructure required for people to actually um, uh, build sections. Um, you can't build a section if there's no drainage or, or sewerage or, or, or electricity connected. So there's a, a wide range of factors that impact the effective availability of land. And what we mean by availability of land is the ability of developers to increase the number of people living on any particular patch of land, whether that involves the city going up or out. So councils and the government all seem to love the idea of new houses. We all love new houses. Uh, why aren't councils and why isn't the government you know, really going for it with the infrastructure and with the zoning so that we can, you know, if we understand that one of the core reasons for our housing affordability problems is a lack of available uh, housing for la- land for housing, why aren't we just, you know, going full out? Let's rezone everything, let's pipe everything, go for it. Well, I would say that there is a lot of change uh, taking place, actually, Bernard. Um, when we've just had the passing of medium density um, residential standards, uh, allowing for denser housing by default um, nationally. Uh, we've got reform in the resource management space. Um, we've got a plan for infrastructure, um, funding and financing of infrastructure development, transport corridors. We actually have, um, under the, the wider urban growth strategy, there's, there are a wide range of, um, of central government initiatives aimed at freeing up effective land supply. I think that is, that's really important because any solution here does need to be national in scale or, or at least across the country. And the reason for that is that if any one city uh, massively freed up land supply, what could happen is you know, people would find it easier to, to move to said freer city. They would do so and quickly occupy the land, um, fleeing the places where it's more difficult to build. So the result, the ultimate result of one city going it alone could be population movement between cities rather than um, house price change across New Zealand. And we've seen this in action. We've seen people in New Zealand moving between regions um, because they find it easier to obtain a house in one region or another. One example is uh, Christchurch after the earthquakes where um, through an accident of nature, they had to rebuild their infrastructure and um, made it a lot easier to consent and you had a lot of construction of housing. And for a period, the house price to income multiples and um, the affordability of housing in Christchurch improved relative to the rest of the country. Yeah, I think Christchurch was an interesting example in all sorts of ways. Um, actually, initially, yeah, one of the things that, that we talk about is um, yeah, what role does population growth versus availability of dwellings actually play? And Christchurch is a really interesting example. Um, an earthquake came along. It wiped out a lot of housing. Both rents and prices rose very rapidly relative to the rest of New Zealand. And the key was that it was both rents and prices. In the short in the short term, and that's the telltale sign. That, that's what a market suffering a lack of dwellings um, looks like. And, and it's, it's important to realise across the rest of New Zealand, what we've had is something quite different to that. You've seen prices rise while rents are fairly stable over time, broadly, um, relative to, 
to income. So, so Christchurch was different. Yes, when the um, yes, there was an effect, very effective supply response, and again, what you saw was both rents and prices massively underperforming the rest of New Zealand for for a number of years. And again, so that, that's it's a real demonstration of of these types of phenomena. More recently, though, Christchurch has started to behave very much like the rest of New Zealand. So the um, the supply response that occurred has probably found its limit, uh, and uh, Christchurch prices rose much the same actually over 2020 and 2021, 19, 20, and 2021 actually, as as the rest of New Zealand. So demonstrating that you know a, lo- a local change is not enough. Okay. You mentioned uh, things are being done around uh, medium density uh, residential standards. Uh, effectively, the government legislating for densification in the bigger cities. But just recently, we've seen some blowback from uh, uh, some of the councils uh, in some direct ways. So the Christchurch City Council this week has uh, voted to reject <laughs> the densification rules and the Auckland City Council has um, put together a reworked unitary plan which seems to exclude large chunks of the uh, the juiciest areas for development on character grounds and also because they're uncertain about the exact route of the uh, CBD to airport rail line. And there are some suggestions that the government would take legal action to you know force the councils to do it. Uh, um, I, I'm not, not going to ask about that from you, but I'm, I'm curious... Why are the councils so passive aggressive <laughs> about all this? Why it seems like the councils are quite quitting on the government's plans to get lots of um, new houses built. Well, I think restrictions on the availability of land um, exist for a variety of reasons, and it is up to democracy to decide um, how much to um, uh, allow land to be provided for development versus other considerations that democracy is worried about. So all we're saying in this study is that the reality, New Zealand's current reality and reality over a number of decades has been a very restricted land supply, meaning that a big drop in interest rates resulted in higher house prices rather than lower rents. We've also pointed out that it could be different uh, and if land supply was more available um, then interest rates would affect the market differently. You, and you might have seen, certainly in a counterfactual world, you might have seen, had things been different, had land been more available, we might have seen less increase in prices and possibly even a decrease in rents relative to incomes. Now, now what we're saying, though, is that that should be taken into account. We've also pointed out that restrictions on the availability of land often exist for good reasons. So um, uh, maintenance of heritage, um, actually just natural geography. There literally is a limit to the amount of land out there. Um, Auckland, for example, has two harbours that really affect its geography. Our response to climate change, we may wish to um, sort of encourage cities to be denser as a sort of a, um, to reduce emissions. Um, there are a range of trade-offs that society needs to bear in mind. So we're not necessarily saying that any one availability of land is right, what we're doing is pointing out that more available land would lead to uh, more affordable housing. And it's up, to, it's up to the elected politicians to weigh that against um, other considerations. 
when I go to councils and say, hey, you know, your refusal to rezone this land or to build the infrastructure um, to do the green fields or the brown fields is one of the reasons that house prices have risen so much. You guys are in the way. What's stopping you? And they come back to me with, well, we're not allowed to borrow anymore. Or um, if, if we do it, we're going to have to put up our rates a lot more. We don't get the benefits of the growth. That all goes to the government in the form of GST and income tax. So we don't have any financial incentives or political incentives to do this. In fact, they're the other way around. A lot of the uh, ratepayers who actually vote are homeowners. And just quietly, they love it that <laughs> land prices are rising and they're making the tax-free capital gains that are leveraged. How do we break this logjam? Because the councils are saying we can't afford it and our voters won't let us. And the government says, well, you need to do it. Um, how do we make change the incentives for councils so they go, actually, it does make sense for us to make, make sure these houses are built? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting perspective. And I certainly agree that um, local governance arrangements are a really important part of this. And indeed, I mean, just one of the many things you've mentioned there um, was the funding and financing arrangements for and incentives for, for local gov- government. Yeah, I certainly think that governance arrangements are one of the things to look at to make sure that society is achieving the trade-offs that society as a whole really wants. Win the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tāmaki Makaurau, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right, and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call, or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply.
infrastructure funding and financing has been, you know, a hot topic for years and years. In fact, there was a, a law passed uh, three years ago, I think, the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Act, which was designed to provide vehicles for councils and developers and private interests to effectively issue a financial instrument, uh, a type of debt, uh, against which that new area could raise a special rate to pay for that debt, effectively avoiding either the council or the government having to borrow in their own right to fund the infrastructure that's going to be possibly in Leisure Town or maybe in the middle of town. But we haven't really seen many of those instruments issued under that new Infrastructure Funding and Finance Act. What's going on there? Oh, I'm sure there's a range of things going on. And I, I, I again, I, I do agree with the real importance of infrastructure funding and financing. I, I would suggest, though, that um, the you know, horizontal infrastructure, the rate at which it's being put in place in New Zealand really has, really has gone up. And I'd suggest that we are starting to address the, the, the infrastructure deficit that, that we've got. Um, and one of, the, one of the constraints actually is ability to deliver. So we've just capacity of the industry. I mean, the industry, if you talk to people in the industry right now, they're utterly at capacity. I think that capacity is clearly growing. And perhaps one of the things to recognise here is that changing, fundamentally changing the effective availability of land is a long-run game. And this has been decades in the making. The infrastructure de- deficit has been decades in the making. The um, governance arrangements, the, 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 the zoning arrangements that we've got, are, are, you know, housing by its nature is a long-run game. It's been decades coming, um, the effective supply of land that we've got now, and it's going to take a really long time to shift the dial. And actually, the, the Housing Technical Working Group's next big project, uh, one, of, one of a couple of big projects, is in a... We want to do a more thorough assessment of where where on the dial between completely restricted land supply and completely abundant various locations in New Zealand actually lie, how that's changed over time if possible, and how which types of policies might be most effective at shifting that dial. And I can tell you within the group there's, um, there's quite a lot of debate actually on, on how far that dial might shift. Um, some people are more optimistic and think that we can really change the game, and some people are sort of thinking, no, it's more restricted, effectively restrictions on the availability of land are more a state of nature that will never really change, and we should just adapt to it. So there's, I think this is a debatable um, point that uh, we'd like to inform with some rigorous research, and, and we're, we're undertaking that now. One argument um, that I've, I've put over the last uh, couple of years is that the fundamental reason for this disconnect between central and local government and not enough infrastructure being built or planned for in the long run, you're right, we're doing as much as we can right now, but we could say to all of the developers and the industry and everyone, hey, we've got this plan that's for 30 years and we want you to scale up your pipe building and road building or whatever it is you're doing and you can be sure that we're going to not have a bust and sack you or when there's a change of government, change it. (laughs) And one of the reasons for the restriction uh, is that the government, with effectively a bipartisan agreement, um, some of it's written into legislation, others not, the government has decided that it doesn't really want in the long run government debt net government debt, to rise much beyond 20 30% of GDP, depending on how you measure it. And also, politically, 
uh, both National and Labor have effectively decided not to increase taxes, uh, core crown tax revenue above 30% of GDP much in the long run and would prefer to see any um, new investment in infrastructure uh, paid for by others at the margins. So it might be the developers or it might be PPPs or um, or it might be using demand management to solve the problem, um, congestion charging. Why not revisit that core uh, restriction on how we fund and finance everything we do around uh, 30% of GDP for debt and around 30% of GDP for tax. I know these are political issues, but overall, could that financing restriction, which is placed on central government and then trickles down to local government through the local government funding agency, could that be the reason why we, we haven't really jumped in and you know, gone ballistic in the long run on, on building infrastructure? Well, uh, I'll leave elected officials to decide on um, the, the, what they choose to make, the, the tax-to-GDP ratio or the debt-to-GDP ratio, but what I will talk a little bit about is some of the considerations that Treasury might engage in in its advice on, um, on choosing these, these levels. So first of all, um, size of government Yep, um, bigger government allows greater provision of, of government services. Um, one of the ways that, that bigger government could occur is through a higher tax ratio funding, um, greater provision of infrastructure over time through public means. That needs to be balanced against the deadweight loss that occurs with taxation. So taxation, um, a you know, basic idea, if it's not um, repairing a market failure or an externality, it's it's likely to be getting in the way of the, the functioning of the private sector and imposing a deadweight loss on society. So, Couldn't you know, describe our housing affordability and yep. climate change crisis, some of those externalities oh, and deadweights? Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. And so therefore, um, elected officials need to decide on the benefit of um, taxing people at cost to society um, and using the proceeds of that taxation to benefit society by things like our climate change response or, or providing public non-excludable infrastructure that does need to be provided publicly. And that's, that's a trade-off. Um, there are two sides to that trade-off. And um, exactly what the right balance is is a, is a matter of judgment. And Treasury would advise on both sides of that, of that trade-off. So Treasury has recently advised the government on what is a prudent level of debt to GDP. Um, on the old measures relative to... Um, that people are perhaps a little bit more familiar with, we might be talking about a 50% debt-to-GDP ratio as a maximum sort of prudent level in normal times, which would leave us enough wiggle room to, um, to if a disaster struck, to allow debt to rise to, to deal with that disaster and still get out of the hole eventually. So that, that's what we regard as prudent, and it's quite a bit north of... But that's a, that's a disaster. That's not a long-term uh, shift to address a long-term issue. Uh, no, I think... Um, what, what Treasury, I, I think you're right that in the past, um, debt to GDP targets have been used as a way to, to as, a, as a means of achieving fiscal discipline. And that does create the risk that perfectly good investment opportunities are going begging. So what we've done is separate out um, fiscal discipline from prudence of debt. And we've said, well, actually, if you really wanted to, you could allow debt in normal times to rise on the old measure 
to 50% debt to GDP ratio. It's about 30% on the on the new internationally comparable measure, um, and that would still be prudent. And that, that's a lot far north of what we've what we've currently got. But the thing is, if you no longer have debt as your means of disciplining governments and keeping uh, fiscal policy, you know, making sure you're getting value for money, then you really need to focus on value for money assessments of every dollar of taxpayer money. So um, Treasury needs to focus, and is indeed, focusing much more closely on value for money assessments of, of all projects, including infrastructure, infrastructure development. And what we're trying to do is take a more holistic view of, of values. So our living standards framework, well-being approach, um, we might, instead of just looking at the, at the, the financial costs and benefits of a new pipe, we might be looking at the, um, both the financial costs and benefits, but also the impact on well-being for, 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 for citizens. Because I'm curious about that. Uh, using the actuarial approach of looking at the long-term costs and the long-term benefits of actions, but also choosing not to take actions... Uh, you could argue that, you know, if we could solve our housing affordability issues and rental affordability issues, plus at the same time, let's say, build a lot of um, much more energy efficient homes that required people to walk and cycle instead of drive an hour and a half, uh, you could solve your housing affordability issues and reduce your climate emissions liabilities in the next couple of decades dramatically. And we know about the health costs and the justice costs and the education costs and the lost productivity growth of having a couple of hundred thousand kids growing up in, in cold, mouldy homes and having to go to A&E two times a year. Is Treasury including those more holistic, you know, long-run, wider, you know, health, justice, education, productivity costs in its assessments? Because on the face of it, we made these trade-offs in the last 30 years in favour of low debt, of low interest rates, of um, small government, and the end result is that we've built up enormous liabilities in the future around climate and around um, health and education, which effectively sort of stole value from the future and pulled it forward. Is that actuarial advice being done, and are you including those sorts of things in your cost-benefit analysis? Yes, Treasury is um, enthusiastically moving towards a more holistic assessments of, of value for money. So um, the Living Standards Framework and Hiata Wai Order are our two sort of well-being frameworks, if you like. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they're, they're frameworks that Treasury um, uses to assess uh, well-being across, across New Zealand. Um, and, yeah, for example, both, both frameworks include many aspects of the things that we care about, not just GDP, unemployment, finances, but they, they, they include um, connections to nature, um, nature as, a, as an entity in itself, um, the um, health, education, all sorts of, of things that we care about, as, as we should. Um, actually, towards the end of this year, we'll be releasing New Zealand's first wellbeing report, which is an assessment of how New Zealand has uh, performed on a much wider range of metrics than you might be used to seeing. Um, it's something that we'll be doing every every four years, and yeah, very excited about about this more sort of holistic uh, approach to assessing how we're doing as a nation. And just to, I mean, I think you, you raised really good points about the trade offs that society faces. Um, but I would perhaps perhaps suggest that 
it's much easier to say, okay, we could we could create this climate friendly environment and have abundant land supply, but actually, maybe maybe those goals are a little bit in conflict with one another because you know, abundant land supply might involve allowing a city just to grow outwards forever, compact compact climate friendly cities where where people are you know encouraged to get on their bikes and and walk might involve more restrictive um, uh, zoning actually. And that's what I was saying earlier, that, that democracy faces these difficult trade-offs. Uh, and one of the key points that we're, we're making in our paper is actually these 1950s economic theories that related the cost of building a house to house prices had at their heart an assumption that land was perfectly abundant, that there was infinite amounts of land, and that is patently unrealistic. We live on two islands after all. But um, that, that's even, that, that is not a reality anywhere in the world. So one of the key points we're making is that actually there will always be imperfections in the market for land, um, uh, and we need to adjust to that reality. And one of those things that we need to adjust to is that interest rates will have pervasive effects on house prices. Another one is that um, tax change might be, might be something that affects land prices rather than rents. So this is fun research, uh, but you're um, giving advice to the government all the time. What sort of, uh, where are we in the process of uh, advice to the government on things like tax and uh, land supply? Yeah, well, we certainly hope that this, that this work will be taken into account in future, future policy work. Again, our, our really key point is that those concerns about tax affecting, affecting rents are perhaps more abundant land supply appropriate for a different land supply arrangement in New Zealand. Um, there are a couple of more subtle uh, things to think about. Inflation actually really matters. The average level of inflation really matters for housing values in the New Zealand context. And this is something that very rarely gets talked about. So if you don't mind, I'd like, sure. to, I'd like to make this point. If you have um, no capital gains tax, uh, people are encouraged to jump into owning assets that yield capital gain. Uh, because the, the capital gains tax-free. Whereas, say, if I put my money in the bank, well, what will happen is um, the entire interest return will be taxed, even that portion of the interest that is merely compensation for inflation. What happens is if inflation is um, higher on average over time, then the, that difference in the tax treatment of those two types of investment becomes more acute, and the inflation compensation portion of the interest is, is taxable. Um, so actually, the rate of inflation in, in models that assess the fundamental value of housing given your tax and interest rate situation, the rate of inflation really, really matters. Um, and you know, that, that, yeah, that, that really matters when we think about um, monetary policy. So what you're saying is that a, a higher rate of inflation delivers a potentially even bigger tax-free gain for people exactly. who are trying to um, make money out of land price appreciation. Yeah, but I'd, I'd like to emphasise that it's it's a higher expected rate of inflation over time. So sort of a one-off burst of inflation is probably, it is a bit of a one-off gain for those who um, experience any associated capital gain, but it's, it's not the, it's, it's the average rate of inflation over time that, um, that, that, that really matters for these tax advantages. So just to finish off, um, I was fascinated in, in your speech and, and the papers around this idea of trade-offs between, well, we could choose to have more affordable housing, but it might mean we have to sprawl and that might um, chew up our 
productive land and cause some climate change issues. Or we could choose to uh, have uh, more affordable housing by increasing land supply, but that might cost uh, quite a lot in terms of infrastructure spending and and higher taxes, and that might uh, have some deadweight effects on um, on the economy. Uh, ultimately, it seems to me that these are political decisions about trade-offs. And one of the risks here is that if you have democratic deficits where, for example, the, the voting rates in council areas is much, much higher amongst homeowners who benefit from uh, rising land values, and also even in general elections, the gap isn't quite so wide, but homeowners vote at much higher rates than, than renters and potential first-home buyers, is there a risk here that the political decisions about the trade-offs are made by mostly or controlled by people who actually benefit from the current situation, which seems to prefer tax-free capital gains on land appreciation over the well-being effects of better housing affordability? I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a political expert. Um, I, I would acknowledge that... Um, older New Zealanders vote in much greater numbers than younger New Zealanders. And an observation of mine is that I don't think anyone really understood in the, in the capital gains tax debate, I don't think the public really understood what it would mean. So I don't, I don't think that the... Maybe, they, the they, ha- maybe ha- they really understood it but didn't like it because it was going to reduce their wealth. It, I don't think the have-nots really understood so um, perhaps it stands to reason that the haves um, understood, but the have-nots um, perhaps didn't understand that housing might become more affordable. I think there's, um, there is actually, yeah, I won't get too much into the politics, um, but there is one oh, really... Oh, go on. It's fine. <laughs> I'll leave that to the politicians. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but there is perhaps one really important policy implication from, from my speech and from our work that's worth considering, and that is... Exactly what has happened to housing affordability in New Zealand? It's not just people just kind of look at the sticker price of houses and go, "That's crazy." You know, house prices are much higher than they used to be. Why do people pay seven, eight, nine times their income uh, for a house when it used to be three? And the answer to that question is they don't, because the sticker price on a house is um, is is not the cost of owning a house. You get the money back when you sell the house later. It's a long-lived asset. Actually, the cost of buying a house is the cost of tying up your capital or the cost of borrowing the money uh, to, to buy the house. And, of course, when interest rates fell, that cost reduced. So this concept of mortgage affordability, the affordability of servicing a mortgage on an average normal house in New Zealand, it's, it's waxed and waned, but it hasn't actually, believe it or not, hasn't gone anywhere in 20 years. Despite the massive increase in house prices, there's also been a massive decline in real interest rates, um, and those have roughly offset one another. What's really changed, and the nub of the social problem, is deposit affordability. So this ballooning in the house price to income ratio has um, dramatically changed the deposit required to, uh, for a young couple or whoever to muster a deposit and, and purchase a house. And what that has done is um, lock people out of home ownership who might wish to move from renting to home ownership. Um, it has caused people to delay their move from renting to home ownership to later in life. Uh, and that is actually, 
as far as home ownership is concerned, actually the social problem. Um, and, and therefore, we would suggest that policy solutions should be looking at deposit affordability, not mortgage affordability. And I'd also add um, that rent affordability, while it, it hasn't changed on a nationwide basis, so rents, it, it, it got a lot worse in the 80s and 90s and hasn't changed much since then. And has remained, rents have remained stable relative to incomes at poor levels relative to internationally. And also, I'd also note that rents have, while they've been stable relative to incomes on a nationwide basis, they have moved substantially at certain places and at certain times. So Rotorua, in recent years, Hamilton actually, between 2015 and, and 2021, I think it was, Wellington, um, over a similar time frame. So we've, and the thing about rents is they really matter for the well-being of some of New Zealand's most vulnerable um, people. Uh, in our well-being research, for example, we've found this gap between older and younger New Zealanders. Younger New Zealanders tend to rent. Lower-income New Zealanders are more likely to rent than higher-income New Zealanders. The rental stock is more likely to be mouldy. It is more likely to be poorly insulated or cold. Um, it is generally of, of lower quality. And um, So I, I do think that while the rent-to-income ratio on a nationwide basis hasn't changed, um, look at policy solutions that investigate the plight uh, of, of tenants in New Zealand as, a, as fertile ground for improving well-being. The irony there, though, your point about uh, deposit affordability is that there have been attempts to improve that over time, um, allowing people to take money out of KiwiSaver, giving them a top-up from the government, which it could be argued um, without changes in the land supply um, simply pushed up, pushed up the prices. And secondly, you know, there's a trade-off here with mortgage affordability. The um, implication is if you allowed people to um, have smaller mortgages relative to the size of the, or the value of the house, let's say 5% or 1% mortgages, that could potentially um, uh, affect financial stability and the LVR restrictions that came in just under a decade ago uh, have been one of the reasons for the um, the difficulty people have in getting them the actual deposits they need that they can realistically get a loan for to buy the house. So there is a trade-off there, isn't there, between yeah. financial stability and deposit affordability and also a risk if you fix the deposit affordability uh, without fixing the land supply, all you end up with is high prices. Exactly. Yeah, trade-offs, I uh, couldn't agree more. So, that, yes, um, I mean, I'll leave it to the Reserve Bank to decide on the trade-offs between um, deposit affordability and financial stability um, and government to decide on the trade-offs. But, you know, the incentive effects and fairness of um, helping people with deposits versus the uh, fixing the, the deposit affordability issue. And there, there are tricky trade-offs in, in any of those policies. Dominic Stevens, the Chief Economist for the Treasury, thank you for being on When the Facts Changed. It's been a, a cracking uh, lap around the, um, the geeky stuff about housing, which actually matters to everyone so much. Thank you. Good Bernard. I really appreciate the opportunity. When the Facts Changed was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. 
the Spin-Off Podcast Network.